folks, you know you're in for a treat when you hear that tune because it's time for another edition of the Rec Poker Podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Jim Reed, Bluffsterini in the home game. And uh, I really got to start off by thanking our sponsors, the Running Aces Hotel, Racetrack and Casino, and of course, website AMP. Um, I also got to thank our other Wrecking Crew members who get to join me here every week uh, talking about poker in the forums edition of the Rec Poker Podcast. Uh, so folks, why don't you just introduce yourselves to Rec Poker Nation here? Well, I'm Chris Jones. You can find me 5B5 on Twitter or 5by5 on the Poker Stars home game. And I'm John Somsky. I'm Poker Geek MN everywhere. I'm Rob Washam, and I'm Rabman50 just about everywhere. And we've also got Woody Adams in the house and John Crowell, who I'm very excited to have. And in a, in a new step here in the forums edition of the podcast, uh, we're actually bringing back a guest from the chats edition. We were chatting with uh, Tommy Angelo a few weeks ago about his life in poker and what he's working on now. And we were having so much fun. Uh, we, we, he was talking about this new style he's taking to poker. He had some hands he wanted to discuss. And we put the, we put the hook out there and he bit. And said he was going to come back and talk about uh, these hands on the forums edition. So, Tommy, thank you so much for coming back on the show, man. My pleasure. Love talking <laughs> poker. <laughs> well, you've been you've been establishing yourself in the poker world for a long time, and you've you've kind of become synonymous with mum poker and playing real tight out of position, so you avoid these kind of painful uh, painful p- poker circumstances. Uh, but you've you've You've, I, w- I don't want to say you've turned over a new leaf, but you're trying some different things. What, what's going on yeah. with that? Tell, talk to me about that a little. Well, actually, what happened is I turned over an old leaf. That's oh. exactly the best way to put it. And yes. so what happened was, uh, you know, it's hard to summarize someone playing style, especially since things change constantly and everything. But the very beginning of No Limit, uh, I started playing No Limit regularly in public rooms in 1997 when I moved to California because they already had that going here, like. 13 years ahead of everybody else or whatever number of years. And back then there was only one book with yes. worth anything. This is even before Harrington's books or anything. Right. So um, at that time I had read the no limit section of this book so many times. This is my second copy. My li- my first one literally just fell apart, <laughs> but I wasn't hardly ever playing it. Right. During the nineties. Right. Okay? This book came out in the eighties and when I first started playing, I was doing this stuff Doyle said. And like, I, I just want to give you some examples here. A little reading from the scripture. Yeah, uh, no kidding. Like me, all the top players know you have to be extremely aggressive to be a consistent winner. You have to bet, bet, bet all the time. If I find somebody I can keep betting at and he keeps saying, take it, Doyle, take it, Doyle. Well, I'm going to keep pounding on him. I'm not going to let up. And that poor guy never will win a putt for me. He's going to have to have the nuts to call me. Okay. I lived and breathed by this during my first years of playing No Limit. And um, I was also a limit player. And we played super fast. We didn't think. We just played. Right. And so this, when I was playing in the big game at Lucky Chances, which that's what we called it, was a thousand minimum buy-in. And the blinds were effectively 20-40. Okay, with the kills and all this stuff. That was a huge game for my bankroll at the time. I would buy in for a thousand, play super nitty, you know, just hope to get lucky basically, 
did not play the style at all. But even during those years, they had a 2-5 game that played every uh, many nights at a place called Pacific News in San Mateo. Started at 7 o'clock, one table casino. And then <laughs> that game, I was playing this style right. all the way back to 2000 and early years. Okay. So then gradually over time, starting around 2008, I started developing a more consistently – because I wanted to end all preflop leaking ever in my own personal world, I started making tighter rules for myself, especially out of position. And I was playing more of a fit and fold game out of position, and but still playing aggressively in position. Once I'm into the flop, if I'm in last position, as I've said in a tweet, you know, I have larceny in my heart. Okay? <laughs> I didn't always have larceny in my heart when I was, you know, Limp, seeing the flop from the blinds with pocket twos in a five-way pot, for example, right? <laughs> right, right. Now I do. Okay. So, <laughs> so just a couple other quotes here. This came a couple paragraphs before that. The very best players I know are extremely aggressive players, and that's what makes them the great players they are. The more aggressive they are, the better they are. It's that simple. And I firmly believe that's what accounts for the difference between a very good player and a truly top player. It's the dividing line, that's for sure. So, I've had clients, pro clients, say to me, yeah, you know, you got this style, it works for you, it's winning great and everything, but you could make more. I mean, I've been coached by pros who have said, you know, you could make more money yeah. uh, if you would adapt some of those things. Let me finish my little readings from this so I can put it away. <laughs> that arm's got to be this okay? tired. That's a big one. Oh, yeah. Are we, are we good on this? Is oh, this we're loving this. Word, words this like reading early. from the scripture. Yeah, right. This is from early. It's amazing how good this still is. I haven't read it in so long, but I was just skimming it. It's phenomenal. So this is a bolded. This is a paragraph he bolded. Right? Oh, yeah. Okay. It comes to a point where you have to take a chance. If you want to be a winner, a big winner, and no limit hold them, you can't play a solid safe game. You must get in there and gamble. So I don't believe that that's absolutely true. It really depends on how bad they play. Mm. And I've been playing with enough bad players often enough or tilty enough that I could play a style where I was basically essentially waiting for the money to come to me. But I was still stealing enough in spots. But I was stealing in spots where my, where I, where I was winning the pots like 90% of the time. Right. You know, betting like 70% of the pot in bluff situations that are almost guaranteed to succeed. I was passing up on the zillions of other ones where I could bet half pot mm -hmm. and it's going to win half the time, which is plenty profitable as that works out, right? So what happened was, um, is he, he says, I'm reaching out, picking up small pots all the time. I'm always betting at those pots, hammering in them. And then one more over here. The accumulation of all those small pots is a big part of my winning formula. So that's, that's all stuff Doyle said. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what happened was, I I got into Ed Miller's book um, about – well, what happened was they started playing 5-10 at Oaks right down the street from me instead of 2-5. So I started playing two or three days a week. I don't have any writing projects going. My results have been fantastic, so that got me going. Then right along that same time, I read the first 50 pages of Ed Miller's book, Poker's 1%. Mm -hmm. And what he mm -hmm. said in there about frequencies, this was one of these things that was like – all I needed to do was just like read it one time and it immediately fit into all of my life experience and everything I already knew. And it gave me the theoretical foundation for 
what Doyle does and what I was already doing back then. Okay, so now it's to the point where the reason I'm seeing many more flops is because of the bluff potential value that is inherent. Mm. Just anytime I'm seeing a flop against the right players in the mm -hmm. right position. Okay, mm -hmm. so let's say I've got um, five, six of diamonds, big blind. A guy op opens out of the gun whose opening range is just a little bit wide-ish, okay? And uh, one person calls. When I'm playing my lock-solid game where I'm just waiting for it to come to me, this is an automatic fold, okay, before the flop. Now, if, if, that's, if either of these players has, is bad at all, okay, and or they are fitting folders, Mm -hmm. And now I'm playing a lot of these people enough to know who those are. I'm absolutely calling that flop. And if if the board is dry at all, I'm betting 100% of the time. You know, so if the board comes and this is one of the hands I wrote down because it was just so funny. Board comes 10 deuce deuce. I've, I've talked about this particular play before, but only uh, I always give king four four. Board comes <laughs> 10 deuce deuce rainbow. I bet. The under the gun guy folds and the second guy calls. And then I muck before the next card came. Which okay. kind of blows, blows their mind. And it's like, that's the kind of fun shit that happens. Um, so, bad, so hold on, hold on. Let's let's just examine that for a second for our audience. I want to make sure people understand what's happening here. So what Tommy's saying is this play, because when it comes 10 to 2 because of just we're in the blind and they've got an open and a call, right? we make a bet. And if they continue, they're continuing with a part of their range that we're not going to win the hand against. And, and right. this was this was a profitable bluff, and right. assuming that they're both going to fold at a certain frequency. Enough of the time. Yeah. And the fact that they didn't, it's, okay, it didn't work. We don't have right. to like feel bad that we didn't win the hand. We're not trying to win the hand. We, we were trying to make right. a profitable bluff. And right. it's going to work more than it doesn't. And this time it didn't. And I love that idea. But the, I mean, but, well, the thing, but this guy calling in that situation, he's got a 10 or a deuce. He's got a 10. Yeah, exactly. Maybe a pocket pair. He could, yes. he could be peeling one off. But, but I don't want to hit a four or a five and accidentally get roped into something. <laughs> right. Um, no, but it also has some metagame effect to do <laughs> crazy shit. Like oh, that, I bet it you know. does. <clears throat> <laughs> so, but the beauty of it is, and, is the fearlessness and painlessness that comes when you know you're making a percentage play. Mm -hmm. You just know it when mm -hmm. with nothing, right? Mm -hmm. So there's no fear. There's no attachment. There's no, you know, it's just like whatever. Um, yeah, because fearlessness and painlessness don't always go together in people's minds. Like I think there's something uh, often I think people chorus, correspond fearlessness to about to feel pain, <laughs> you know, like a certain percentage of the time. Yeah. So I like that there, cause it's really, it's a confidence in the play is what you're yeah. like. That's, that's the fearlessness that it, right. it, it sort of separates you from the pain because well, to me, they're the identical. Like fearlessness yeah. and painlessness are like the same thing in mm. a sense. Most of pain we have some kind of fear. Mm. Um, does anybody else want to say anything? Yeah, guys, of course, feel free to stop. I mean, that's basically <laughs> what we want. Yes. <laughs> we do get a comment. Yeah. Rob, jump in. You know, it's, it's funny when you talk about how, when he makes that play, when he makes the call, you automatically know that he has something that you don't want to continue with your hand. Right. And that's, right. that that's kind of how I feel sometimes when I make that three bet bluff preflop. 
right? There's certain hands that you're going to play and you feel more comfortable playing some of those than you do some of the premiums that you want to continue with. So for instance, if you have pocket Queens and you three bet and you get four bet, now you're going, Oh no. Right. Whereas if you have ace Jack offsuit and you three bet and you get four bet, you go, okay, fold. No problem. Yeah. Yeah. No problem. So I know that's exactly what you're saying right there. You're saying that, Hey, you make this play and it's a percentage play because most of the time they're going to fold to your three bet. But when they don't, it's very easy to throw it away when you you already know you're going to fold. If you get raised is what makes it easy. Exactly. Exactly. I love it. You know, depending on the exact situation, I call that, uh, LMIP last money in the pot, you know, before the flop isn't as good an example, but let's say, you know, it's on the flop. And uh, you flop top, top, and a guy bets or whatever, and you raise. Some situation, you know, they come up where when you make your raise, when you're making a very thin raise or a very thin value bet, you know this is it. If they yes. raise, I'm out. If they bet the river, I'm out. I'm done, you know. But that's the, what we're talking about is that is that is a fear. There's not much fear involved, which makes it easy. Yeah, because it also it, makes it, it easy to um, – to have your mechanics be good. So the, the so another thing I've been doing, and I mentioned this in the other thing, is like my continue betting on the turn after I barrel the flop percentage is higher. And I knew after I read what Ed wrote that it had been too low. And now it's like an, an example I just played this afternoon. I had ace-king. A guy made it 30. I made it 90. And got two, cold, two callers for 90. Cold caller and then the other guy. I know. Welcome to California. So, uh, so there's like 270 in the pot, and I I actually buy in short in this game. I start out it's maximum a thousand. I start out 300 or 400, and get in some really good short stack situations. And it usually takes about an hour for people to start tilting anyway. So I so at this moment in the hand after I bet 90, I had 350 left. So the flop came eight six four rainbow, and I just shoved. Right? It's like I'm if they've got nines, they're gonna have to play this hand. And and um uh the the beauty of it is nobody called this particular time, mm-hmm. but if somebody calls, I sh- I roll it immediately every time, you know, because it's my turn to show. They go last aggressor shows, right? And uh but the part I'm excited to share is the absolute lack of fear or regret mm. about any of it. It's just like, you know, I've been climbing this mountain for a long time, and it's really a good good spot to be in to be playing really, really aggressive out all the time without any fear. Well, yeah, and, and when when you can see the entire range of your opponent's hands, and like Woody is making a comment here in the chat about like a thin value bet and and how like – when you make a thin value bet, part of what you're thinking about is, yeah, they have hands that beat this. And if they're going to raise, I'm going to fold because yeah. I'm not worried about, you know, a balanced raising position here. I can, I can fold confidently right. and, and right. feel, exactly. feel great about it because my whole, my whole strategy is based around the idea that part of their range is going to call part of the range is going to fold and part of the range is going to shove and, and, you know, being able to predict that 
and kind right. of baking that into your play, of course, it, it eliminates the fear, the, the fear and the pain of it, because no matter what they do now, it's just a question of, oh, this is the time they were going to do that. You know, this right. is the part, this is the distribution of the range that they were in at that time. Yeah, exactly. Much, and more, some percentage of their range, they're going to raise. Right. Yeah. And, and then you're going to fold every time. Yeah. yeah. So what he says, um, all right. So when we make a thin value bet and we get raised, uh, we should edge towards that fold button. Yeah. Usually, I mean, unless, oh, yeah. and now, and now, unless, unless you've got some crazy tell on them that, but yeah, if you're thinking about it as a thin value bet, when they make that raise, then you're kind of telling yourself already that, yeah, you should be edging towards that fold. Yeah. Button. Exactly. Yeah. Now you, said it now you guys are hundred percent tournaments, right? Uh, no, I mean, it, it most. I mean, as we discuss this in your mind, you're picturing yourself in tournaments. I think that's probably true for a lot of our audience, but uh, okay. there are there are some cash players out here too. So. Yeah, I think there's uh, there's definitely a cash game population. Uh, yeah. yeah, I was thinking yeah. in terms Roaming of about cash it. games when you because I don't know I how much of this. I mean, I know the you know the great tournament players are very very aggressive, and I imagine they're doing a lot of this same stuff I'm talking about all the way through the tournament. Mm. Just picking up pots and picking up pots. I don't know. Um, yeah, I think there is there is that there is that kind of small like there is that strategic difference a little bit. I think between in fact, Woody made a comment in here earlier. In, ten, in tournaments, it seems like there's uh, uh, you know winning the chips that are in there are kind of like more valuable in a way because your stack is so important and that might influence yeah. your uh, your decisions a little bit. Um, but I'm always interested in in those, in that tension between tournament and cash play as well because I enjoy both. Uh -huh. Um, but I, and, but I'm not sure I could even very authoritatively speak about how you might play one hand differently in one versus the other. Um, right. so now, yeah, so it is, it is yeah. very interesting, but now you, you mostly play cash, uh, is, 100 is live yeah. cash yeah. for almost 20 years now. And, and what, I, I don't want to get too far away from what we're talking about here already, but since we we're talking about it, we like to find a few rabbit holes along the way here. Um, sure. so what is it, uh, is it the deep stacks about cash that make it very different? Is it playing against the same players so that you have a much more intimate knowledge about their playing style or uh, as a, as a player of cash, like what are the elements of it that you think make it kind of unique or that uh, well, you allow can have you to the same nine guys sitting there playing for two days. Right. You know, there's so many differences. It, it's, it's almost even to even call it differences is, undersells the how different they are yep um man i can't explain it it's like you got the guy sitting there with a, in a thousand dollar maximum buying game buying 300 at a time playing uh getting all in once every eight hands right <laughs> yeah. i mean it's like the the profitability of the game you can just see it right there's no ifs ands or buts i mean uh, the the differences that make me prefer cash mm. strongly are that um, my three advantages are that I can control when I'm playing. Right. I can control who I'm playing against and I can play better than they do. In tournaments, I only have one advantage if I even have that. Right. Yeah. And the other thing is it's I find it deeply unsatisfying to play to make five really great plays over the course of three hours, a great pull, a great this, and then have my whole 
day come down to waiting for an ace to shove with 12 bigs. You know, <laughs> I, I just can't stand that. It's yeah. like it, I want my bad plays to immediately affect my net worth, and I want my good plays <laughs> to immediately affect my net worth. Yeah. yeah Rob, <laughs> did you have something there? Well, I was just going to say one of the – I think he summed it up pretty well, but the main differences are, like he said, you're playing against the same players over and over and over again. And in a tournament, players are coming and going all the time. So yeah. by the time you figure a person out, he's leaving, going to another mm-hmm. table right. or getting busted out. Whereas a cash game, you got those guys. So you can, you know, when, when you can attack them and when they're weak and when they're not weak. Right. And, exactly. and it's, a, it's so, it's so much easier to extract value from them than it yeah. is in a tournament. And then the stack size, stack size is changing. Like you said, waiting for an ace when you got 12 big blinds, so you can get it all in. Yeah. You know, that's, that's, it's a totally different dynamic at that point. So yeah, stack sizes and the, and the fact that you're playing everybody for hours and hours at a time. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that I get frustrated that time uh, sometimes too, Tommy, where I feel like I've been playing great poker for eight hours and making good decisions. And then, you know, one bad beat, one hand where you got the wrong side of a flip and then like, it all kind of right. seems like it was for nothing. Uh, right. that, that is a little discouraging, I think, sometimes as a tournament player, for sure. And, and the thing for me is, like, in every place I've been, if there's a tournament going on, there's a cash game right next door. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> I'd be in some tournament. I was like, why am I not over there with the three worst players in the room instead of playing yeah. with these tournament yeah. specialists? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Well, we got a couple uh, more questions here uh, from Woody about cash play. And then uh, you should let me know, Tommy, if we want to head into another episode afterwards or uh, talk a little more hand here. In the meantime, um, so Woody says, sometimes I see people move seats in a live cash game. Do we know why they do that? Um, And usually it's about it's about either getting close to someone or getting away from someone. Tommy, what's your take? Yeah, well, there's many, many reasons people prefer various seats for various reasons. But um, if I change seats with the intention of, for the purpose of making more money, it's very specifically to put a really tight telegrapher on my left and another one on the left. The two players on the left are the most important to me. And I'm already playing at Oaks often enough. You know, the one seat is oftentimes my favorite seat I can, for a number of reasons. And for whatever reason, tight regulars love the two and three seat. And it's like <laughs> the other day we started a game and here it comes like, I couldn't have scripted any better. They both buy in relatively small. They play super tight. They're right behind me. And so what that means is that on my button and on my cutoff and in the hijack, the three most important hands every round, if there's any live players in the game, whoever they are, I'm acting behind them on every street on all three of those hands. That's the main reason I want I want tight, predictable players on the left. Also, I get the button more often. I can be in the cutoff. The action's coming around. I look over. I see this guy telegraphing. He's going to fold on the button. I know I've got the button. A lot of reasons to have tight players on the left. But like you said, a lot of people will change seats to get sit behind a loose player. But it's still the same idea. You're trying to gain some kind of positional, a better positional situation. Yep. That's perfect. Yep. And I think people don't quite appreciate how valuable it is having, as you refer to a telegraphing player to your left when you're in the cutoff. Because uh, yeah. it's it's like playing two buttons a lot of the time. Um, right. And, and so that's obviously hugely, hugely valuable. Yeah. Uh, all right. Right on. Oh, we got one more question uh, from Woody here. 
when you, is it true what people say that uh, if you spot a player's tell, you don't tell anything, you don't tell them? Is that a, is that a rule? What, what do you do, Tommy, when you spot someone's tell when they're eating the Oreo? What, uh, what's, what's, the, <laughs> what's the protocol there? I would never, never tell them. There are lots of other things I wouldn't say to them either. I mean, <laughs> generally speaking, I don't think it's good, you know, good to just volunteer advice at the poker table at any time because you might piss the person off just as much as help them, you know. Um, but no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I would definitely not tell Teddy KGB about his Oreo problem. <laughs> <laughs> there you go i love it uh, every time we talk about it i want to go and rewatch that movie it's it's it is a strong one it's a strong maybe we'll go find some youtube clips later uh well thanks tommy i know um it's going to be great to uh I, you're, you're enjoying poker uh, playing yeah. more now than you were before you're playing more often you're making more money you're yeah. you're doing it out of position um yeah <laughs> sounds like you sounds like you cracked the code, man. You you got it all. It figured seems out. like it right now. Yeah. You know, maybe I'm just running good, and I'll be singing a different song next week. <laughs> <laughs> well, is there another hand you want to talk about tonight, or uh, do you want to save one for I mean, another ep- another episode? What's your preference? Um, well, I mean. We kind of, if you want to do another episode now, that's fine. Yeah, I'd love that. Let's let's drag okay. Tommy back into the booth for another week, folks. Um, all right. Well, then, without any further ado, I will thank our wonderful sponsors, Running Aces Hotel, Racetrack, and Casino, and Website Amp, and of course, uh, John, Chris, Rob, Woody, and John. We got two Johns tonight. That's exciting. And Tommy Angelo for coming, and to you, the listeners, for being so much fun and for supporting us. Thank you so much.